Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Scudic Arts for All, presenting holiday craft classes, Clay Drop Plates, on Saturday, November 5th from 1 to 3 p.m. inside Combs Studio at 56 Main Street in Prospect Harbor, scudicartsforall.org or 963-2569. A voice of many voices, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and on the web at weru.org, grassroots community radio. That's right, and it's 10 o'clock, and it's time for Democracy Forum with your host, Ann Luther, of the League of Women Voters Down East. Good morning. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the ninth program in our series this election year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about the ballot questions in Maine. We'll discuss the ballot questions in Maine this year, how the process works, what the questions mean, and how citizen initiatives fit into a representative versus a direct democracy. We'll be taking your calls during the second half of the show, so stand by to join the conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host this morning for the Democracy Forum, and let me introduce our guests. Joining us in the studio today is Amy Freed. Amy is Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine. She also oversees the Maine Policy Scholars Program at the University of Maine and authors the must-read blog Pollways at the Bangor Daily News. Professor Freed's research Research is in the history and political uses of public opinion in the United States, as well as political ideas and activism. She is the acclaimed author of numerous books and articles. Her most recent book is Pathways to Polling, Crisis, Cooperation, and the Making of Public Opinion Professions, and is currently working on a book on the strategic promotion of distrust in the United States. Can't wait to read that one. Uh, Good morning, Amy, and welcome. It's great to be here, Anne. Um, also in the studio with us is Jill Goldthwaite. Um, Jill is well-known in the area as our former state senator um, from Bar Harbor in Hancock County. Jill is also an award-winning political columnist for the Ellsworth American and the Mount Desert Islander. She's lived on MDI since 1978 and worked as an RN registered nurse at the MDI hospital for 25 years. She served on the Bar Harbor Town Council for nine years, eight of those as its chair, and she was elected as an independent or unenrolled uh, senator to four terms in the Maine State Senate from 1994 to 2002 before being termed out under Maine's term limits law. Following her legislative service, she was director of government relations at the Jackson Laboratory for nine years, retiring in 2012. Welcome, Jill. Thank you very much, Anne, and thanks to the League for putting on a very important program. Thank you. So, uh, Amy, let's put it to you first. What is the history of the Citizens Initiative in Maine? Well, uh, Maine adopted this element of our political system in 1911, and this grows out of the progressive movement, which was a movement that wanted to decrease corruption in government and also increase the role of average citizens. And, um, you know, one of the other things associated with the progressive movement is the direct primary so that candidates were chosen by voters 
rather than uh, party bosses, you know, party leaders and in, in, in back rooms that that didn't uh, really spread completely the, the primaries uh, till a lot later. But, you know, that's when it got started. And there are a lot of other things in that era uh, that were, you know, really meant to take away power f- from um, political machines. So, uh, you know, that you would choose people uh, based more on their qualifications and who they knew and the basically the professionalism of government through the development of um, public administration as a profession. Mm-hmm. Do you want to add to that, Jill? Uh, just that I have a slightly earlier date for the 29th Amendment, which was 1908. Um, it has <clears throat> been u- was used only seven times in the first 60 years. Uh, and that includes none in the 50s and 60s. But then the pace started to pick up. There were six uh, referenda in the 70s, 13 in the 80s, 16 in the 90s, 18 from 2000 to 2010, and, of course, 10, including the current ones, um, so far in the 2010s. Mm-hmm. So having five referendum citizen-initiated questions on the ballot at one time is really not that unusual in the recent past? Uh, no, five at once is, um, I think, is one of the higher numbers we've had. But I know that there are a lot of voters out there feeling a bit overwhelmed about how to find out about those and how to think about them. Well, that's what we're here for today. Um, talk about the how things get on the ballot. Like, what do citizens have to do in order to put one of these questions forward? Um, you do that by petition. You uh, get a, you file a request. <clears throat> Excuse me for a petition with the Secretary of State's office. Uh, you must get signatures equal to ten percent of the number of votes in the previous gubernatorial election, and you have eighteen months to get those signatures from the time you get your petition. If you get all the signatures and they are appropriately validated by town clerks and then the Secretary of State's office, uh, you have an item that is a proposal for legislation in the state of Maine. The item then goes to the legislature, and the legislature could pass it themselves without sending it out to a public vote. But almost always, maybe always, um, the legislature declines to act on something that has come from the citizenry, so they pass that along. It's possible for the legislature, if they have a strong feeling about the issue or some aspect of the issue to put out a competing measure, they cannot change the question as it's brought to them by the petition. But they can develop a competing measure and put that out at the same time. You want to add to that? I think there was consideration of a competing matter, measure on at least one of the questions before us this year. That's right. There was discussion of doing that on the minimum wage, and uh, you know that just didn't come to fruition. And in some ways, I think it muddied the waters a bit because uh, this was coming from uh, the Republican side, which had been very critical of increasing the minimum wage. So, you know, with some members of the party opposing really the concept of a minimum wage itself. So then if you are introducing another version of that, you know, it, it seems somewhat contradictory. And the proponents of these citizen initiatives typically oppose competing measures because it makes it very hard for the original question to win. Is that so? Yeah, I don't remember what year it is. One of you may recall, but I remember uh, some on forest management practices. Uh, you know, this was, I've been in Maine for 19 years. So it was somewhere early on 
in my life in Maine <laughs> that there were several measures, and I don't think any of them ended up passing. You know, it just gets very complicated l looking at them, and, you know, people don't have that binary choice, um, and, it, you know, therefore it can undermine support for any of them. I think actually the winning question, had, like if there are three choices, you have to get over 50% in order to prevail. And if none of the three gets 50%, then the top two go back another round until one does get 50%. I, I think it's a, <clears throat> a sort of a weird system where the, the top vote getter goes out alone and has to get a third of the number of total votes, be a third of the number of votes cast in the first election they have to reach at least that number in positive votes mm. in order to win. So it's it's rather complex, and, right. and I don't remember that we've ever had to do that. Yeah. And and when would it go back out again? I mean, it's not it's, a short term. No, it's time, the next right? general election. Yeah. So it would be at least six months. Okay. You know, from a November election, it would be on the yeah. June ballot then. And you know, so it's the original measure, the competing measure, and neither. So the three choices mm. to start. And then whichever of the two goes up against neither, you know what I'm right. saying? Right. But the whole competing measure thing to me is an indication of one of the weaknesses of the citizens' referenda because it, it indicates that there are strong other views. And uh, the legislative process is meant to attempt to sort those out before legislation is completed. But with the referendum, uh, as inevitably comes to light, there are issues that, that even the people who wrote those and think they really got it right suddenly say, oh, you know, that could have been clearer or whatever. That doesn't happen as much with the referendum process or as thoroughly, I'll say. Mm -hmm. And so uh, then somebody says, well, we'll do a competing measure because right. that will explain this or that. And, and then, uh, as I say, that points out one of the weaknesses of the process. Go ahead, Amy. Yeah, and I'd say, I mean, really most political scientists are not really crazy about <laughs> referenda as a process. Uh, simply because, um, you know, we've designed a system of government where there can be a lot of give and take and negotiation, and there's a lot of issues that are very complex. Uh, you look at various tax reform measures, for example, there's a lot of, uh, you know, specifics that get worked out in order to get a bill that can pass. Um, you know, and the same is true with, with other kinds of policies, um, and so you, you know, you've kind of lost that element of the political system by making it this binary up or down kind of thing. Um, you know, I think it may make more sense to something that's a relatively simple kind of situation, um, you know, but the more complicated the referenda is, sometimes you go, hmm, mm -hmm. is it, is it really, the, is this really the way we should be making policy? I agree with uh, with Amy. I, I think that uh, an example of something that to me makes uh, good sense for a referendum is term limits. It's pretty basic. Do you want them or do you not? And do you want them to be? Of course, then it's somebody puts it out in the referendum, it'll be four terms. Well, somebody might say, I'd favor them, but for eight terms or two terms. So there's still some room in there. But it's basically an up or down question. When you get into policy, it gets very complicated, and most of those policy details are not well known to the public. The question one, the marijuana initiative, is a single sentence on the ballot. It's a long sentence, but it is a single sentence. But it's backed by 34 pages of a bill that goes along with that that explains all the details. How would this work? What about licensing? What about taxation? And those details are generally lost because it's complex and, and legislation is by nature rather difficult to read. Fair enough, but it 
is serving, would you say, as sort of a safety valve in the current climate where compromise is harder and the legislative process may be frustrating people's intent in some ways? Or is that why we're seeing so many questions on the ballot this year? And I just want to add one more thing for you to think about when you answer that question. I think um, around the country, you know, the League of Women Voters has worked on a certain number of structures of democracy, referendum, um, clean elections, term limits, whether you like them or not, um, redistricting reform, things that have to do with changing the power of politicians to control the the process are very difficult to pass through legislative enactments. Yes, they are. And I know so, that full well, having served as an independent and having come across many uh, statutes, laws that controlled what I as an independent could do within the legislature. Right. If we have a, a study commission, it'll say there have to be this many people from the majority party and that many people from the minority party. And I'm not even eligible for that. I'm happy to say that my colleagues were quite cooperative in a sensitivity to that and changing some of that language to make it a bit more open. But yes, if you're trying to change something that is an advantage to the political parties, it's not likely that you're going to do it within a legislative setting controlled by the political parties. So Amy, talk about how the referendum process provides a sort of a safety valve for frustrated citizen. Um, well, in Maine in particular, one way is through the um, the ability to overturn you know a law of the of the legislature with the people's veto process and one case of that where the league was involved was in 2011 with the restoration of election day registration yeah. which was you know turned out to be ex- extremely well supported by the voters to restore i believe it was a something like 6040 yeah. you know it was pretty oh, it was an overwhelming vote to do that so it was a bipartisan vote among citizens to to restore that and you know that is certainly a case of uh you know how much influence citizens are going to have because we know that if you can vote uh, I mean, if you can register to vote on election day, you have uh, the states that have that have higher levels of voter participation. But then we had a people's veto on that um, very carefully crafted um, tax reform package um, that was sort of in the other category of something very complex, worked out through careful negotiation, you know, overturned along very simplistic lines. Yeah, I think that that is a problem. Um, but I think the people's veto is different than a citizen's initiative because it's, it is a black or white up or down thing as opposed to it's not being replaced by some policy that somebody has developed. <clears throat> it's a simple uh, refutation of something that passed. And that's the reason why uh, bills d- that pass do not become law for 90 days. That 90-day period is the opportunity for the citizenry to veto any legislation. We're at the 15-minute break here, so let me um, come back to the question about direct versus um, representative democracy in a minute. But for our listeners, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is ballot questions in Maine, and our guests are Amy Freed, professor of political science at the University of Maine, and Jill Goldthwaite, uh, former Maine state senator and award-winning political columnist for the Ellsworth American and the Mount Desert Islander. And we were talking um, before the break about the 
relative advantages of making law through direct democracy versus through a legislative or representative democracy. And I wonder if you would start with you, Amy, comment on that generally, what political science thinks about direct democracy versus representative democracy and how that thinking may apply to the referendum process. I mean, I, I would say that most political scientists, you know, are more supportive of using the kind of standard institutional structures that we have, um, you know. And But on the other hand, you know, there's a lot of respect for the progressive movement, for what the progressive movement stood for in terms of reforming government and um, you know, professionalizing government in various ways, um, introducing, you know, regulation of food and drugs. Uh, the FDA is a – Food and Drug Administration is a progressive era kind of reform. Also restrictions on fundraising. Uh, you know, the question of money in politics was quite alive during that period as it is today. So, you know, I think there's a lot of respect for certain elements of it, uh, but – in general, yeah, really supporting the idea that you need to have people with judgment and knowledge and expertise, the people who are elected, to go in and make most most kinds of decisions and deal with the complexities and do the working out and negotiation. I mean, that you know, you can look at uh, the writers of the founders like James Madison and how you know really the that's the role of of elected officials. And if citizens don't like them, they vote them out. I mean, you know, there's still a role for citizens there. But it's in terms of controlling uh, those who are elected. Of course, that then becomes a little more difficult sometimes, though, if you've had legislators go in and draw electoral lines, district lines, so that then they can more easily get reelected. And there are all kinds of incumbency advantages as well. It can be difficulties in getting on the ballot. Often third parties, um, you know, depending on the state, whatever, have real difficulty getting on the ballot. Uh, so, you know, if you have, you know, it's, so it's a nice idea to say, well, yes, that's that. This happens through the normal institutional legislative process, but you also can have ways in which that becomes problematic. You know, uh, what 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 uh, people sometimes say about districting, the gerrymandering, is that. We want voters to choose elected officials, not elected officials to choose right. choose the voters. Um, but also, there, you know, at this point, there are a lot, I think there are certain frustrations in, um, in in terms of just being able to get things passed in, in Maine between the legislature and the governor in particular. Um, but, you know, one thing I'd want to say about the recent uses of referent, and I guess this is an interesting case, would be one that didn't make the ballot this year, which was a casino one, where there was an enormous amount of money that came in and people were getting paid. I had heard something like $10 per signature to, wow. to get uh, signatures at one point. But it was so poorly done. It was so poorly organized that it didn't qualify. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, they didn't train people very well. So in some ways, I think that shows some of the potential dangers where you have, uh, you know, a lot of money that can come in and and potentially have an impact. In that case, it didn't because they did such a poor job of the running the campaign. But if you look in a state like California, which has enormous number of uh, referenda, a lot of those are coming from, you know, pretty wealthy interests yeah. that are funding that. 
and it, they, and then the advertising is often um, not particularly accurate <laughs> in yeah. how it presents <laughs> the the vote, and so people are are unsure how to vote when they have this huge ballot. I want to give Jill a, a moment to comment on um, the re- the reasons why we're having an active period in referendum in Maine right now, and also on the money question. But um, then I want to turn to covering the questions that are on the ballot, because I know there's going to be a lot of interest in that. And I want to remind listeners that we'll be taking your calls in the second half hour. So, um, Jill, final words on the appropriate use and Mm. downsides of the referendum. Well, you know, you call it a safety valve, and that's a good way to look at it. But unfortunately, there can be corrupting influences on the citizens' referendum process as well as on the legislature itself. And I wonder if the answer to frustration with the legislature not getting anything done is to say, okay, we'll do it ourselves, or is to say, how do we fix the legislature? So uh, in my mind, going to the root problem, which is uh, some of the influences, money being one of them, within our legislative process, that uh, I would sooner see that fixed than find a way to end run that, really. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's um, at this point turn to the uh, ballot questions themselves and start talking about what what's on the ballot, what it means, and what the arguments are on both sides. And um, again, we'll ask listeners to join the conversation and get their questions answered beginning around 1030. So question one is an act to legalize marijuana. I'll read the question. Do you want to allow the possession and use of marijuana under state law by persons who are at least 21 years of age and allow the cultivation, manufacture, distribution, testing, and sale of marijuana and marijuana products subject to state regulation, taxation, and local ordinance? Yes would be legalized marijuana. No would be to keep things as they are. So what are you hearing about this question? What are the pros and cons? Where do things stand in the campaign to pass this right now? Who wants to go first? Well, uh, I think I'm hearing, and it's also um, a big asterisk by that because what I hear comes from an area that is relatively leans liberal, I would say. It's fair to say, based on previous uh, elections. And uh, I I don't spend all of my time at home, but uh, a lot of it is, is influenced by the thinking, the prevailing thinking on Mount Desert Island. But I sense increasing discomfort with this um, referendum. Various issues have come up. I know that uh, people who are now small growers feel that it's opening the door for large corporate interest to come into the state and start marijuana growing businesses um, where that money will then leave our state. Part of the appeal of this for some people is the fact that there is a 10% tax on um, various aspects of, of marijuana growing and sales. And if that money is going to out-of-state businesses, that's not going to be helpful to the bottom line. Uh, I think that, that it started out feeling like, you know, a small amount of marijuana shouldn't be a criminal act and raising small amounts for personal use shouldn't be a criminal act. But this is a big and complicated bill. As I said earlier, it's 34 pages that back up that question that Ann just read to us. And uh, I think that the more people look at it, the more anxious they get. There was the comment from the Attorney General's office that children will be able to use marijuana legally. Uh, I'm not sure I, looking at the language, which says over 21, over 21, over 21, it has to do with 
penalties that were repealed by this legislation, and maybe Amy can give you a better yeah, what do you want to add explanation to that? of that. What do you want to add to that, Amy? Yeah, I am not totally sure what's going on with that because, you know, the Attorney General did look at this bill earlier on and didn't raise those questions. So t- to me, it seems an open question what it exactly what it what it's uh you know what it would do when it comes to children but it certainly is a concern i think that's come up and then is important to people um i mean i think maine has a couple of different uh tensions in it i mean there there is somewhat of a libertarian strand in maine um and so that i think would push towards legalizing um and you do see nationally, uh, you know, really increasing numbers of people who support legalizing marijuana, although that's also something that's very much divided and influenced by age groups. So, you know, younger people being much more supportive and older people less so, and Maine is an old state, and so you wouldn't assume that there would be the same amount of support as there is as there is nationally. But in any case, really the tension that I saw with libertarian is, libertarianism is I think, you know, Jill raises a really good point about local versus corporate power, but also that we are in a period of a real drug crisis. And even though that involves opiates and not marijuana and, you know, really that's, you know, very, very different <laughs> kind of drug, I think it could just having having that around as a big issue could influence how people f- feel about it. But at the same time, the ACLU, I guess, is backing the question, and their arguments seem to be about over-incarceration and, um, you know, reducing prison populations Mm -hmm. overall. Is that correct? Yeah, and there, I mean, there just are so many people who have tried or, you know, used marijuana over the years at least some point in their life. And so if you say, well, this is going to have all these bad effects— in terms of potentially being involved with other drugs, a lot of people have experience either with themselves or people that they knew where that simply did not happen. Right. One thing that I I think is uh, well-researched with marijuana is that it's not a stimulant, it's not a motivator, and I'm not sure if that is a helpful element to add to uh, to the current issues in society. And the other negative I've seen with hard data, although I'm not probably qualified to evaluate that data, is the increased number of motor vehicle accidents in the states that have legalized marijuana. Okay, shall we turn to the next question? Um, Question two is an act to establish the fund to advance public kindergarten to grade 12 education. And the question reads, do you want to add a 3% tax on individual main taxable income above $200,000 to create a state fund that would provide direct support for student learning in kindergarten through 12th grade public education. So, Amy, where did this question come from, and what are you hearing about the pros and cons and so forth? I think this is one of these cases where a referenda comes uh, about in terms of frustration with the political process because... You know, there is a requirement for the state legislature to fund education uh, by a previous referendum. I can't remember the exact percentage. I'm it's sure. 55%. Yeah, 55% yeah. of the cost. So, you know, since it's never that, that has never happened, and it's, that's obviously a big 
piece. So of to be the, clear, that passed by referendum a few years ago, and the legislature never did it. That's, right. Okay. Go so ahead. So the legislature never did it. So this is a way to say, okay, well, here's the money for it, because that I think that is really one of the you know issues when it comes certainly when it comes to funding education is if you're going to you know where's the money going to come from and education and healthcare are you know pretty like basically the biggest pieces mm-hmm. of the state budget um so who are the principal backers of this question and what are their arguments in favor of it well i mean i think the main argument is is simply that you know that we 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 should be supporting education more and you know get the get the financial support for it um you know i i so, some of the questions about it is you know are, i think some of it is around the formula for it how are the funds actually going to be distributed are the poorest schools going to get the support that they need and also um to some extent questions about how much does funding relate to educational outcomes? There's a whole big literature about that, various you know research on that. Because a lot of times the funding is a, you have higher levels of funding, maybe you have better outcomes, but it's also associated with certain kinds of neighborhoods and mm-hmm. populations. So what is going on there? Right. Is it the money or is it the underlying? Structure. Is it the underlying population there? Um, and then some of the other questions would have to do with you know what it does to raise taxes. Um, although it's certainly targeted on a certain population, the over 200,000 uh, population in in the state, does that have any impact on the business climate of the state, the ability to attract people to and, the state? And the way that it's working is, like, if you make $201,000, your first 200000 is not subject to the tax. Right. The tax right. only applies to the extra. Only right. to sure. the amount above right. two hundred. So what are you hearing about this one, Jill? Well, uh, I think the school... Uh, industry, if that's not a too unfair a word for it, that general unit teachers, superintendents, administrators, school-oriented people are in favor of it. And the business community has been largely apprehensive, although I believe there's division between the small business people and the Main State Chamber of Commerce, the small business people being more supportive, feeling like they need well-trained workers. The piece in here that is tortuous and interesting only to a political nerd is the part about supplanting versus supplementing money. So once this fund is created, let's say we put $5 million in it. Um, the, the idea is for that money to fill that gap between what we currently spend and the 55%. But the legislature makes thousands of choices about what we spend. So nothing is truly supplanting because if the legislature decided, well, we're going to spend nothing on marine patrol officers and way less on health care, they would have the 55%. So it is legislative choices that are determining whether we get to the 55%. So simply to say, you know, we're going to put the money in this fund in there and then we're going to take more out of school fund. It's not that simple. It's much more mm-hmm. complex in terms of all the other decisions a legislature makes. So maybe a legislature would feel like, well, we can put more money into uh, farms for the future 
because we know right. we've got this backup fund. So it's very complicated, and then there's and, the issue of fairness. Well, and well, I don't want, don't want to cut you off on that, but, I mean, these are only bills just because they passed by referendum. They have no special status as opposed to a bill that passed by legislative enactment. So in terms of what the legislature can do in terms of honoring the intent or amending or repealing, you know, all of that stuff and is available to them. And that's not telling – in the bill is a provision that says how it must happen if the legislature is going to amend or enact other legislation that would affect this fund. So there sounds to me like they're already preparing for the possibility, if not the likelihood, right. that somebody will have other designs on this money or want to change the definition of what it can be spent yeah. on. Right now, it can't be spent on administration. It can only be spent on in-school school expenses. Okay. So, I'm sorry. We're at sure. the 1030 mark, and I, I uh, feel like we're going to wish we had two hours for the show, but mm-hmm. I do want to invite listeners to join us at this point, and I st- do want to get through all the questions. So um, let me say again, this is the Democracy Forum on WERU. I'm Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine, and our guests this morning are Amy, Amy Freed, Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine, and Jill Goldthwaite, Maine, former Maine State Senator and award-winning political columnist for the Ellsworth American and the Mount Desert Islander. Our topic today is the ballot questions in Maine, and we welcome your calls at this point in the conversation. You can call toll-free 866-625-9378. Or if you're local, you can call 469-0500. We're going to um, a lot of material to cover, so if you do get through, I would ask you to ask your question or make your comment and take the answer offline so we can get as many calls in today as possible. And while we're waiting for our first caller, um, let me go to ballot question number three. Um, I'm going to read this. An act to require background checks for gun sales is question number three, do you want to require background checks prior to the sale or transfer of firearms between individuals not licensed as firearms dealers with failure to do so punishable by law and with some exceptions for family members, hunting, self-defense, lawful competitions, and shooting range activity? Um, We do have a caller, so uh, I think it's Yo. Um, Go ahead with your question, Yo. Good morning. This is Yo in Tremont. Here are some ideas about government that should have more currency. The body of laws has a pilot on higher and deeper quality to it. Legislators should be required to dismantle and annul two obsolete laws for each new bill they want to pass. Second, true democracy takes place at the wallet. Policy decisions should be made on the tax form with what might be called taxpayer-allocated funding. You want war? Fill in your amount on line A. You want peace? Line B. Hey, yo, I don't want to um, cut you off here, but do you have a question for one of our guests? I have a remark. Is As it, for question Is one, it a brief remark? It's brief. Go ahead. It is intended to perpetuate the drug war by subdividing cannabis culture into allowed and illegal activities. The end of prohibition will come when the word marijuana is struck from every regulation and statute. Thank you for putting on this program, and thank you to everyone for supporting Community Radio. Thanks for your call, Yo. Okay, so uh, back to ballot question number three. Uh, What about this one? Who's backing it? Where does it stand? What are its prospects for and against? Who wants to go first? Well, I would say, as Jill, I would say that um, the the 
The lines are drawn as one might expect. Maine has a hunting culture. A lot of people own uh, guns and have grown up hunting, and they are feeling somewhat threatened by the idea that they life might become more complicated by them based on these requirements. On the other hand, we have a stunningly, jaw-droppingly enormous number of people being murdered in this country on a daily basis, one at a time, 10 at a time, 50 at a time, by people with guns. As these evolve, and this is not the only question where this happens, there is a certain sense now that we've had this state conversation about the ballot question, there are some people who feel like, well, we probably could have written a better question. That's one argument in favor of not doing this through ballot referenda. Um, but there may be other ways. But the, the problem is the people who are now saying, well, if you know you hadn't included this or if you'd done it that way, why didn't they step up and write a ballot question that was suitable in their opinion? So I think that we um, – Unfortunately, this is a kind of a, a bright line between two schools of thought in Maine, and I'm not seeing the conversation being advanced at all by the debate about this question. It's, people simply are hardening into their positions, and I wouldn't venture to call how this is going to go down on the 8th. What are you hearing, Amy? Who's behind this? What are the arguments? This is one of these things, yeah, I think this is probably the most controversial with really the best organized campaigns for both sides of any of them. You know, you think of, uh, you know, some of them really have more strength from one side or the one side or the other. So, it, you know, it's really quite divisive. And, um, you know, on the one hand, nationally and polling data in Maine, people like the idea of enhancing background checks. But again, it's when it comes to, you know, guns. But on the other hand, yeah, it's the specifics of this and uh, how, how it would be carried out and the, and the kind of hunting culture. But, you know, I mean, one thing we know in Maine, Maine has, <coughs> has low level of violent crimes, very, very low, and it has low <coughs> level of murders. But most murders in Maine are people who know each other, killing each other, and specifically men killing women with whom they have a relationship. And, um, you know, one of the elements of Maine's uh, law that has to do with getting protection from abuse orders is a federal requirement that uh, people in that situation not have uh, a firearm at, at when, when they're under that order but um, there's, it, it's, been, it's been very, very loose how that works out. So they can just sort of take that gun and give that to someone they know, um, while there's other states in which a police officer will come to the home and remove firearms and store them separately. So, you know, when you think of, you know, what is the actual um, landscape of violence in Maine, it's, it's within this really – Generally, this this one area. Um, there's there's also some other crimes, drug crimes, um, and pr unfortunately, they may increase in the future given the issues with opiates. But I mean, that's really what it's what it's been. I mean, I've heard on the pros and cons side a lot of opposition stemming from areas that I sort of thought were carved out as exceptions sure. under the law. So, are people yeah. understanding clearly how this is going to work in terms of loaning a gun to a friend or giving an heirloom gun to your well, son I, I or something like that? I think with, with anything, there is a lot of anxiety about, will it really work that way? Or, you know, what about the, are there gray areas and, and, and all that? But if you look at 
guns as a public health issue, statistically, suicides and children having access to guns, children so young that they don't really understand what a gun is or what it would do, um, gun storage is an issue. There are guns now apparently being made and sold in Europe that have um, the biological ID, so only the owner can fire them. There are storage units that lock securely but open with a fingerprint touch, so it's not like you've got to remember the combination if you need your gun to defend yourself at home, and uh, you can quickly have access to your gun. So there are things like that that we could be doing that I don't think most gun owners would really object to, because it's simply a matter of increasing the level of safety of either a child or a person at a desperate moment in their life making an unfortunate decision and finding a gun available. Yeah. Um, you're listening to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther, and we're talking about the ballot questions in Maine with our guests Amy Freed and Jill Goldplate. Um, you can join our conversation by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or if you're local, 469-0500. Um, we're going through the questions one at a time, and I think we'll turn now to ballot question number four, which is an act to raise the minimum wage. Do you want to raise the minimum hourly wage of $7.50 to $9 in 2017 with an annual $1 increase up to $12 in 2020 and an annual cost of living increase thereafter? And do you want to raise the direct wage for service workers who receive tips from half the minimum wage to $5 in 2017 with an annual $1 increase until it reaches the adjusted minimum wage? What are you hearing about this one? You go first, Amy. This one seems to be the most popular, at least based on the available public polling. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, we don't know actually, obviously, how it will turn out. But so far, uh, this one seems to have various broad support. I'd say one element of it that has gotten not that much attention but is important is the cost of living adjustment that will kick in as part of it. I mean, that is in the ballot language, but I haven't re- really heard that much discussion of that. And um, that has been adopted in some states around the country. I know New Jersey adopted that two years ago, and there's several other states that have done that as well. So that then puts this on somewhat of a, you know, kind of an automatic road with the rise of the minimum wage. And there's been some discussion also about applying to tip workers, which is, uh, you know, really not an element in in all minimum wage uh, referenda or, you know, laws, but but um, you know, is I think it's a uh, yeah, it's a it's a, it's, a, it's a certainly a critical element of it overall. Um, one of the things I'd point out is that some of the analyses have just looked at the workers who are making current minimum wage in Maine, the seven fifty an hour, um, and how many would be influenced. But given that there are people making in between, they would also be influenced. Mm-hmm. So you, it ends up being a, a fair number of people when you look at it overall who would get raises, and then you know there's the potential for people making whatever the next minimum wage is what they're making already, who who perhaps would get bumped up um, as well uh, because then, they, you know, people wouldn't want to be paying minimum wage. Right. Um, you know, a lot of wages are subject to, you know, just uh, 
how many people are available for a particular kind of job, and sometimes wages will will be, you know, e- even for, you know, various basic service jobs above the minimum wage to begin with if you can't find, find many people right. to, to work there. But there certainly are plenty of people in the state who are making minimum wage or just above minimum wage now. So what are you hearing about this Jill, and who's for it, who's against it, and why are they supporting their respective sides? Well, I think anybody who um, is has gotten themselves a job and is getting up and going to work every day and working 40 hours in jobs that are difficult and often unpleasant ought to be paid enough money that they can house themselves and put food on the table. So um, I guess that's an opinion about that one. <laughs> uh, in Bar Harbor, we have had a summer like no other summer. We have had help wanted signs up in many, many businesses all summer long. That's not uncommon in the spring and the fall, but usually by summer we've got a workforce going, but uh, not this year. There is a sign on the front of our grocery store that says help wanted, starting pay $12 an hour. That's the top level to which this legislation reaches. So some people say, well, we don't need it because most people are already making more than minimum wage. But on the other hand, for those that aren't, this is a boost up. One of the big arguments is that, well, when I hire kids, I don't want to have to pay them you know, that much money for a summer job. Or if I hire an older retired person, well, you know, an older retired person has got a storehouse of life experience and professional experience and why should they be working for seven fifty an hour? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess most of the opposition that I'm hearing is coming on the tipped worker side, but I don't know if you're hearing that too or not. Not so much. A little bit, but I think that gets a bit complicated about how would that work and what does that mean. And uh, I think there was a restaurant in Maine that said, no tips, we're going to pay our wait staff X amount per hour, and it was a reasonable amount, and, uh, and we're going to have a no-tip policy. So it would be interesting to see how that's working out for that business that decided to take that on voluntarily. Anything else on question four before we turn the page? Okay, turn the page. Um, Question five, an act to establish ranked choice voting. Do you want to allow voters to rank their choices of candidates in election for U.S. Senate, Congress, Governor, State Senate, and State Representative, and to have ballots counted at the state level in multiple rounds in which last place candidates are eliminated until a candidate wins by majority? Who wants to go first? Well, I would say on that one that uh, the one of the bigger questions about it is it is a bit to get used to. It's a bit complicated to understand exactly how it would work. Um, In this particular election year, we seem to have a major focus on um, voter fraud and rigged elections, which happens uh, in a statistically insignificant way nationally as well as in Maine. I know my town clerk. I don't know if you all know yours, but uh, I would not mess with her around the election. And uh, I I think that there is – there are provisions to make sure that this is a safely guarded way to vote. There are other states, and uh, there are uh, Portland is using that in some circumstances. I think that people um, have debated the issue of. Uh, in our recent experience, we had a five-way gubernatorial election. We've we haven't had a two-way gubernatorial election, but once in the last twenty-five years, I think it is something close to that. So um, we are deeply experienced with the situation of, well, I really like candidate C, but on the other hand, if I vote for C, then maybe A will win. So this is a way of offering voters a way around that, and I think that's helpful. And it also avoids the cost of a 
a physical runoff election. This is sometimes called instant runoff because basically you're making your second choice at the same time you're making your first choice. Uh, there are concerns, as I said, about ballot integrity, but I think those are managed. In the case of a recount, we have a process for mm-hmm. ballots being delivered to a central location and a chain of command of the ballot and so on. So um, the, the, the downside of this one, I think, is dwindling in the public mind as people get more comfortable and come to understand it. What are you hearing, Amy? Well, I, you know, it is a complicated process. It's being used around the country at a municipal level, uh, you know, in some cities. But it has never been used in a, an American state, state, you know, for statewide elections or, well, or state legislative elections. So it, it it's, it's, would be a bit of an experiment, although it has also been – it has been used internationally. It's used in Australia, for example. Um, the political science research on this is has – a couple of different arms to it, I'd say. And, you know, one is that, yes, it does seem to improve civility, which is one of the arguments for it, that you're going to have elections where people don't go after the other candidate in the same negative way because they don't want to turn off potentially the supporters of that other candidate. They might because they want to be perhaps their second choice (laughs) in the ranking. So it does seem to improve civility. However, there's also research that suggests that you get some drop off in political participation, voter participation, and more in part because of more spoiled ballots. In other words, people not voting correctly among voters with lower levels of education and income, which as someone who's, you know, very interested in voter participation and keeping voter participation high, as many people voting as possible, that is a little, you know, it seems to be a bit of a difficulty. I, but I, so I would think, though, that if it passes, it would be really incumbent on the Secretary of State, the League of Women Voters, others, to engage in a voter education program to make sure that people understand how to rank the voters, I mean, rank the candidates. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. um, because, uh, yeah, because you don't want that to to be an impact. Mm-hmm. I will say a tip to the voters. Uh, we were, I was in a conversation about this last night and people were talking about being afraid that they had done something wrong with their ballot that would make it invalid and didn't realize that if you're in the voting booth and you make a mark or you do something that you realize, oh, that's not right, you can ask the clerk for another ballot and they will void the ballot you have and uh, and you can cast a clean ballot. Yeah. So in the process of getting used to this, if you do something that you then realize is not what you intended, you can get a clean ballot and vote. And the optical scanning equipment that we use in Maine can be set up to return uh, uh, an erroneously cast ballot to mm-hmm. the voter for them to get a second chance. That's true now. Um, anything else on question five? Just, uh, I know there's a bond question that I'm sure you want to get to, but I I also want to say that if anyone wants information about the referenda, there are two places you can go. One is the League of Women Voters Guide, which is in your grocery stores, libraries, all over the place right now, which is a great help. And online, www.lwvme.org. Good. And the (laughs) other one is if you go to the Secretary of State's office, maine.gov slash SOS, um, or just Google Citizens Guide, Maine Citizens Guide to the Referendum Election 2016. It is uh, a 60-pager, but 34 pages of that is the marijuana legislation, so it's not as daunting as it looks at first glance. It gives you the ballot question. It gives you the full text of the the bill behind that ballot question. 
It gives you a plain language, short uh, section called intent and content, which explains in, in lay language what each question is about tells you the significance of a yes or no vote. Uh, sometimes it looks like yes means no and no means yes. So it helps you with that. Gives an estimate of the fiscal impact, both revenues that might be raised and expenses that will be incurred. And it also has a section where up to three public comments can be filed either in favor or against the particular question. So it's a great resource, and I highly recommend it. Um. So before we turn to the question, one more time, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters. Our guests this morning are Amy Freed and Jill Goldthwaite, and we're talking about the ballot questions in Maine. Our lines are open. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 866-625-9378, or if you're local, 469-0500. So here's the last question. Question 6 is a bond issue. Do you favor a $100 million bond issue for construction, reconstruction, and rehabilitation of highways and bridges and for facilities, equipment, and property acquisition related to ports, harbors, marine transportation, freight and passenger railroads, aviation, transit, and bicycle and pedestrian trails to be used to match an estimated $137 million in federal and other funds? So how do these bond questions come on the ballot in the first place, and then what do we make of this one in particular? With a few exceptions, like the court authority, um, bond questions have to go to the public. So they don't come through a petition route the way the referendum questions do. They just have to be put out for public approval. So this was put on the ballot by the legislature? Yes, in conjunction with the administration. The department develops, the Department of Transportation in this case, develops a funding request based on what they propose to do with that money. And um, you can uh, determine the the debt consequences of this are also in the citizen's guide and so on if you're interested in that side of it. It's very rare that a highway bond fails. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is drive from your house to the post office and you realize that uh, we're a bit behind in our infrastructure. And so uh, I don't hear anybody even talking about this. And uh, unless it suffers from being the sixth question, Mm -hmm. I think it Mm -hmm. probably will um, is that what you're hearing too, Amy? Yeah, I would just agree. They just really do tend to pass. Uh, Professor Melcher of UMaine Farmington did a whole analysis of this last year. He presented at a conference of, you know, how different um, bonds, you know, have have tended to go in Maine. And, you know, everyone loves transportation bonds, basically. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think bonds run into trouble also when there are multiple bonds and then people go through and say, okay, which maybe there's one I don't want to spend money on this one. Um, and this, you know, yeah, it's, it is number six, but it's also the only bond. bond. Right. And I mean, we have had some bond issues pass in Maine that then have not been released or issued. Mm-hmm. It, That's, do you have another hour? And I've got another <laughs> two minutes, right? That, yes. Uh, the, the, uh, and the chief executive has up to five years, I think it is, to uh, release those bonds. And, that you know, there's a whole sort of process for that. And um, it, that process can become political as well. And I, I think that, yes, it's true that there have been some questions about bonds being released. And should they or do they have to be or how does that work in Maine? Um, so is that likely to happen on this one? I would be very surprised. Okay. Sounds good. Well, we're 
coming to the end of our hour here, so I want to give you each a moment to make a last comment or pitch about this, and I would especially um, ask you to say a few words about how we can encourage people to turn out and vote in this election. Um, so you want to go first, Jill? Sure. Um, in the past oh, 10 days and in the next week, uh, I have been involved with many different contexts in which citizens are getting together to talk and think about what's coming up in the election. And I must say that it has been very heartening. I mean, this cycle has been so depressing in so many ways. Uh, when you get a bunch of well-intentioned people in a room, even people that have very different opinions, there is still a desire to understand the issues, be thoughtful about them, be civil to each other, even be funny, which is the best. And uh, I think that that is a sign that all is not lost. And I, I can't imagine that people would sit out this election. I certainly hope they don't, no matter who or what they're voting for. That's the only way we get a general expression of public opinion. Go ahead, Amy. Last thoughts or comments before we run out of time here today? Yeah, I would definitely encourage people to get out and vote. And I know that the absentee ballot applications are way up in Maine and even the numbers returned already. I usually like to vote myself on election day because I just like the sort of civic feel of it. But I did go down and vote in Bangor City Hall a week ago. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's there's so many different things on the ballot, all of these referenda and, of course, lots of uh choices when it comes to candidates. Uh, people can vote through November 7th and then um, on on Election Day, I believe. Let's see. No, maybe I have the date wrong. What's the last day? A week from today, is it? Um, it's or th is it the Thursday. It's the, the Thursday, Thursday before Today's election, Friday, which so. I believe is the third. So you okay, can vote. Right. Um, with no excuse absentee voting until November 3rd, with excuse absentee voting through November 7th, and then register and vote um, same-day registration on November 8th. We're out of time. Um, th thank you to our guests this morning, Amy Freed, political science professor at the University of Maine, and Jill Goldthwaite, Maine's former Maine State Senator and award-winning political columnist for the Ellsworth American and the Mount Desert Islander. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM. Our next program will be broadcast at this time on November 18th, when we'll be debriefing from the election what just happened here. Uh, thank you to Amy Brown, our engineer today at WERU. Thank you to our listeners. Um, the League's website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in the series. See you here next month. Support for WERU comes from